CD5 I like the forest best, said Esk. I don't know, said Granny. This is a bit like a forest, really. Anyway, people certainly appreciate a witch here. They're very friendly, Esk conceded. You know the house down the street where that fat lady lives with all those young ladies you said were her relatives? Mrs. Palm, said Granny cautiously. Very respectable lady. People come to visit them all night long. I watched. I'm surprised they get any sleep. Um, said Granny. It must be a trial for the poor woman with all those daughters to feed, too. I think people could be more considerate. Well, now, said Granny, I'm not sure that... She was rescued by the arrival at the gates of the university of a large, brightly painted wagon. Its driver reined in the oxen a few feet from Granny and said, Excuse me, my good woman, but would you be so kind as to move, please? Granny stepped aside, affronted by this display of downright politeness and particularly upset at being thought of as anyone's good woman. And the driver saw Esk. It was Treetle. He grinned like a worried snake. I say, it's the young lady who thinks women should be wizards, isn't it? Yes, said Esk, ignoring a sharp kick on the ankle from Granny. What fun! Come to join us, have you? Yes, said Esk. And then because something about Treetle's manner seemed to demand it, she added, Sir, only we can't get in. We, said Treetle, and then glanced at Granny. Oh, yes, of course. This would be your aunt? My Granny, only not really my Granny, just sort of everyone's Granny. Granny gave a stiff nod. Well, we cannot have this, said Treetle in a voice as hearty as plum pudding. My word, no. Our first lady wizard left on the doorstep, that would be a disgrace. May I accompany you? Granny grasped Esk firmly by the shoulder. If it's all the same to you, she began, but Esk twisted out of her grip and ran towards the cart. You can really take me in, she said, her eyes shining. Of course, I'm sure the heads of the order will be most gratified to meet you, most astonished and astounded, he said, and gave a little laugh. Escarina Smith, said Granny, and then stopped. She looked at Dreetle. I don't know what is in your mind, Mr. Wizard, but I don't like it, she said. Esk, you know where we live. Be a fool if you must, but you might at least be your own fool. She turned on her heel and strode off across the square. What a remarkable woman, said Treetle vaguely. I see you still have your broomstick. Capital. He let go of the reins for a moment and made a complicated sign in the air with both hands. The big doors swung back, revealing a wide courtyard surrounded by lawns. Behind them was a great rambling building, or buildings. It was hard to tell because it didn't look so much as if it had been designed as that a lot of buttresses, arches, towers, bridges, domes, couplers and so forth had huddled together for warmth. Is that it? said Esk. It looks sort of melted. Yes, that's it, said Treetle. Alma mater, Gordy Armour's Eagle Tour and so on. Of course, it's a lot bigger inside than out, like an iceberg or so I'm given to understand. I've never seen the things. Unseen university, only, of course, a lot of it is unseen. Just go in the back and fetch Simon, will you? Esk pushed aside the heavy curtains and peered into the back of the wagon. Simon was lying on a pile of rugs reading a very large book and making notes on scraps of paper. He looked up and gave her a worried smile. Is that you? he said. Yes, said Esk with conviction. We thought you'd left us. Everyone thought you were riding with everyone else. And then, when we stopped, I sort of caught up. I think Mr. Treetle wants you to come and look at the university. 
We're here, he said and gave her an odd look. You're here? Yes. How? Mr. Treetle invited me in. He said everyone would be astounded to meet me. Uncertainty flashed a fin in the depths of her eyes. Was he right? Simon looked down at his book and dabbed at his running eyes with a red handkerchief. He has th these little fancies, he muttered. B -b but he's not a bad person. Bewildered, Esk looked down at the yellowed pages open in front of the boy. They were full of complicated red and black symbols, which in some inexplicable way were as potent and unpleasant as a ticking parcel, but which nevertheless drew the eye in the same way that a really bad accident does. One felt that one would like to know their purpose, while at the same time suspecting that if you found out, you would really prefer not to have done. Simon saw her expression and hastily shut the book. Just a magic, he mumbled. Something I... Working? said Esk automatically. Thank you, Odd. It must be quite interesting reading books, said Esk. Sort of. Can't you read, Esk? The astonishment in his voice stung her. I expect so, she said defiantly. I've never tried. Esk wouldn't have known what a collective noun was if it had spat in her eye. But she knew there was a herd of goats and a coven of witches. She didn't know what you called a lot of wizards. An order of wizards? A conspiracy? A circle? Whatever it was, it filled the university. Wizards strolled among the cloisters and sat on benches under the trees. Young wizards scuttled along pathways as bells rang, with their arms full of books, or in the case of senior students, with their books flapping through the air after them. The air had the greasy feel of magic and tasted of tin. Esk walked along between Treetle and Simon and drank it all in. It wasn't just that there was magic in the air, but it was tamed and working, like a mill race. It was power, but it was harnessed. Simon was as excited as she was, but it showed only because his eyes watered more and his stutter got worse. He kept stopping to point out various colleges and research buildings. One was quite low and brooding, with high, narrow windows. That's the library, said Simon, his voice bursting with wonder and respect. Can I have a look? Plenty of time for that later, said Treetle. Simon gave the building a wistful look. Books of magic ever written, he whispered. Why are the windows barred? said Esk. Simon swallowed. Because books of magic aren't like other books. They lead a... That's enough, snapped Treetle. He looked down at Esk, as if he had just noticed her, and frowned. Why are you here? You invited me in, said Esk. Me? Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, mind wandering. The young lady who wants to be a wizard. Let us see, shall we? He led the way up a broad flight of steps to an impressive pair of doors. At least, they were designed to be impressive. The designer had invested deeply in heavy locks, curling hinges, brass studs, and an intricately carved archway to make it absolutely clear to anyone entering that they were not very important people at all. He was a wizard. He had forgotten the door knocker. Treetle rapped on the door with his staff. It hesitated for a while, and then slowly slid back its bolts and swung open. The hall was full of wizards and boys, and boys' parents. There are two ways of getting into Unseen University. In fact, there are three, but at this time wizards hadn't realised it. The first is to achieve some great work of magic, such as the recovery of an ancient and powerful relic, or the invention of a totally new spell, but in these times it was seldom done. In the past, there had been great wizards capable of forming whole new spells from the chaotic raw magic of the world. 
wizards from whom, as it were, all the spells of wizardry had flowed, but those days had gone. There were no more sorcerers. So the more typical method was to be sponsored by a senior and respected wizard after a suitable period of apprenticeship. Competition was stiff for a university place and the honour and privileges an unseen degree could bring. Many of the boys milling around the hall and launching minor spells at each other would fail and have to spend their lives as lowly magicians, mere magical technologists with defiant beards and leather patches on their elbows who congregated in small, jealous groups at parties. Not for them the coveted pointy hat with optional astrological symbols or the impressive robes or the staff of authority. But at least they could look down on conjurers who tended to be jolly and fat and inclined to drop their H's and drink beer and go around with sad, thin women in spangly tights and really infuriate magicians by not realising how lowly they were and kept telling them jokes. Lowliest of all, apart from witches, of course, were thaumaturgists who never got any schooling at all. A thaumaturgist could just about be trusted to wash out an alembic. Many spells required things like mould from a corpse dead of crushing or the semen of a living tiger or the root of a plant that gave an ultrasonic scream when it was uprooted. Who was sent to get them? Right. It is a common error to refer to the lower magical ranks as hedge wizards. In fact, hedge wizardry is a very honoured and specialised form of magic that attracts silent, thoughtful men of druidical persuasion and topiric inclinations. If you invited a hedge wizard to a party, he would spend half the evening talking to your potted plant and he would spend the other half listening. Esk noticed that there were some women in the hall, because even young wizards had mothers and sisters. Whole families had turned up to bid the favoured sons farewell. There was a considerable blowing of noses, wiping of tears, and the clink of coins as proud fathers tucked a little spending money into their offspring's hands. Very senior wizards were perambulating among the crowds, talking to the sponsoring wizards and examining the prospective students. Several of them pushed through the throng to meet Treetle, moving like gold-trimmed galleons under full sail. They bowed gravely to him and looked approvingly at Simon. This is young Simon, is it? said the fattest of them, beaming at the boy. We've had great reports of you, young man, eh? What? Simon bowed to the Arch-Chancellor Cutangle, Arch-Mage of the Wizards of the Silver Star, said Treetle. Simon bowed apprehensively. Cutangle looked at him benevolently. We've heard great things about you, my boy, he said. All this mountain air must be good for the brain, eh? <laughs> he laughed. The wizards around him laughed. Treetle laughed, which Esk thought was rather funny because there wasn't anything particularly amusing happening. I don't know. From what we hear, it must be the only thing you don't know, lad, <laughs> said Cutangle, his jowls waggling. There was another carefully timed bout of laughter. Cutangle patted Simon on the shoulder. This is the scholarship boy, he said. Quite astounding results, never seen better. Self-taught, too. Astonishing, what? Isn't that so, Treetle? Superb, Arch-Chancellor. Cutangle looked around at the watching wizards. Perhaps you could give us an example, he said. A little demonstration, perhaps. Simon looked at him in animal panic. Actually, I'm not very... Now, now said Cutangle, in what he probably really did think was an encouraging tone of voice. Do not be afraid. Take your time. When you are ready. Simon licked his dry lips and gave Treetle a look of mute appeal. A... Uh, he said. Y y he stopped and swallowed hard. His eyes bulged, the tears streamed from his eyes, and his shoulders heaved. Treetle patted him reassuringly on the back. Hay fever, he explained. 
Don't seem to be able to cure it. Tried everything. Simon swallowed and nodded. He waved Treetle away with his long white hands and closed his eyes. For a few seconds, nothing happened. He stood with his lips moving soundlessly. Then silence spread out from him like candlelight. Ripples of noiselessness washed across the crowds in the hall, striking the walls with all the force of a blown kiss, then curling back in waves. People watched their companions mouthing silently, then went red with effort when their own laughter was as audible as a gnat's squeak. Tiny motes of light winked into existence around his head. They whirled and spiralled in a complex three-dimensional dance and then formed a shape. In fact, it seemed to Esk that the shape had been there all the time, waiting for her eyes to see it, in the same way that a perfectly innocent cloud can suddenly become, without changing in any way, a whale or a ship or a face. The shape around Simon's head was the world. That was clear, although the glitter and rush of the little lights blurred some of the detail. But there was Great Artuan, the sky turtle, with the four elephants on its back, and on them the disc itself. There was the sparkle of the great waterfall around the edge of the world. And there at the very hub, a tiny needle of rock that was the great mountain Cori Celesti, where the gods lived. The image expanded and homed in on the Circle Sea, and then on Ankh itself, the little lights flowing away from Simon and winking out of existence a few feet from his head. Now they showed the city from the air, rushing towards the watchers. There was the university itself, growing larger. There was the great hall. There were the people, watching, silent, open-mouthed, and Simon himself, outlined in specks of silver light and a tiny sparkling image in the air around him, and that image contained an image, and another, and another. There was a feeling that the universe had been turned inside out in all dimensions at once. It was a bloated, swollen sensation. It sounded as if the whole world had said, Gloop. The walls faded, so did the floor. The paintings of former great mages all scrolls and beards and slightly constipated frowns, vanished. The tiles underfoot, a rather nice black and white pattern, evaporated, to be replaced by fine sand, grey as moonlight and cold as ice. Strange and unexpected stars glittered overhead. On the horizon were low hills, eroded not by wind or rain in this weatherless place, but by the soft sandpaper of time itself. No one else seemed to have noticed. No one else, in fact, seemed alive. Esk was surrounded by people as still and silent as statues. And they weren't alone. There were other things behind them, and more were appearing all the time. They had no shape, or rather they seemed to be taking their shapes at random from a variety of creatures. They gave the impression that they had heard about arms and legs and jaws and claws and organs, but didn't really know how they all fitted together, or didn't care, or were so hungry that they hadn't bothered to find out. They made a sound like a swarm of flies. They were the creatures out of her dreams, come to feed on magic. She knew they weren't interested in her now, except in the nature of an after-dinner mint. Their whole concentration was focused on Simon, who was totally unaware of their presence. Esk kicked him smartly on the ankle. The cold desert vanished. The real world rushed back. Simon opened his eyes, smiled faintly, and gently fell backwards into Esk's arms. A buzz went up from the wizards, and several of them started to clap. No one seemed to have noticed anything odd, apart from the silver lights. Cutangle shook himself and raised a hand to quell the crowd. Quite astonishing, he said to Treetle. You say he worked it out all by himself? Indeed, Lord. No one helped him at all? There was no one to help him, said Treetle. He was just wandering from village to village doing small spells, 
but only if people paid him in books or paper. Utangle nodded. It was no illusion, he said, yet he didn't use his hands. What was he saying to himself, do you know? He says it's just words to make his mind work properly, said Treetle, and shrugged. I can't understand half of what he says, and that's a fact. He says he's having to invent words because there aren't any for the things he's doing. Cutangle glanced sideways at his fellow mages. They nodded. It will be an honour to admit him to the university, he said. Perhaps you would tell him so when he wakes up. He felt a tugging at his robe and looked down. Excuse me, said Esk. Hello, young lady, said Cutangle in a sugar mouse voice. Have you come to see your brother enter the university? He's not my brother, said Esk. There were times when the world had seemed to be full of brothers, but this wasn't one of them. Are you important? she said. Cutangle looked at his colleagues and beamed. There were fashions in wizardry, just like anything else. Sometimes wizards were thin and gaunt and talked to animals. The animals didn't listen, but it's the thought that counts. While at other times they tended towards the dark or saturnine, with little black pointed beards. Currently, Aldermanic was in. Cutangle swelled with modesty. Quite important, he said. One does one's best in the service of one's fellow man. Yes, quite important, I would say. I want to be a wizard, said Esk. The lesser wizards behind Cutangle stared at her as if she was a new and interesting kind of beetle. Cutangle's face went red and his eyes bulged. He looked down at Esk and seemed to be holding his breath. Then he started to laugh. It started somewhere down in his extensive stomach regions and worked its way up, echoing from rib to rib and causing minor wizard quakes across his chest until it burst forth in a series of strangled snorts. It was quite fascinating to watch, that laugh. It had a personality all of its own. But he stopped when he saw Esk's stare. If the laugh was a music hall clown, then Esk's determined squint was a whitewash bucket on a fast trajectory. A wizard, he said. You want to be a wizard? Yes, said Esk, pushing the dazed Simon into Treetle's reluctant arms. I'm the eighth son of an eighth son. I mean, daughter. The wizards around her were looking at one another and whispering. Esk tried to ignore them. What did she say? Is she serious? I always think children are so delightful at that age, don't you? You're the eighth son of an eighth daughter, said Cutangle. Really? The other way around, only not exactly, said Esk defiantly. Cutangle dabbed his eyes with a handkerchief. This is quite fascinating, he said. I don't think I've ever heard of something quite like this before, eh? He looked around at his growing audience. The people at the back couldn't see Esk and were craning to check if some interesting magic was going on. Cutangle was at a loss. Well now, he said, you want to be a wizard. I keep telling everyone, but no one seems to listen, said Esk. How old are you, little girl? Nearly nine. And you want to be a wizard when you grow up? I want to be a wizard now, said Esk firmly. This is the right place, isn't it? Cutangle looked at Treetle and winked. I saw that, said Esk. I don't think there's ever been a lady wizard before, said Cutangle. I rather think it might be against the law. Wouldn't you rather be a witch? I understand it's a fine career for girls. A minor wizard behind him started to laugh. Esk gave him a look. Being a witch is quite good, she conceded. But I think wizards have more fun. What do you think? I think you're a very singular little girl, said Cutangle. What does that mean? It means there's only one of you said Treetle. That's right, 
the desk. And I still want to be a wizard. Words failed, Qtango. Well, you can't, he said. The very idea. He drew himself up to his full width and turned away. Something tugged at his robe. Why not? said a voice. He turned. Because, he said, slowly and deliberately. Because the whole idea is completely laughable, that's why. And it's absolutely against the law. But I can do wizard magic, said Esk, the faintest suggestion of a tremble in her voice. Hugh Tangle bent down until his face was level with hers. No, you can't, he hissed, because you're not a wizard. Women aren't wizards. Do I make myself clear? Watch, said Esk. She extended her right hand with the fingers spread and sighted along until she spotted the statue of Malik the Wise, the founder of the university. Instinctively, the wizards between her and it edged out of the way and then felt rather silly. I mean it, she said. Go away, little girl, said Qtangle. Right, said Esk. She squinted hard at the statue and concentrated. The great doors of Unseen University are made of octoron, a metal so unstable that it can only exist in a universe saturated with raw magic. They are impregnable to all force, save magic. No fire, no battering ram, no army can breach them, which is why most ordinary visitors to the university use the back door, which is made of perfectly normal wood and doesn't go around terrorising people. Or even stand still terrorising people. It had a proper knocker and everything. Granny examined the doorposts carefully and gave a grunt of satisfaction when she spotted what she was looking for. She hadn't doubted that it would be there, cunningly concealed by the natural grain of the wood. She grasped the knocker, which was shaped like a dragon's head, and rapped smartly three times. After a while, the door was opened by a young woman with her mouth full of clothes pegs. What do you want? she inquired. Granny bowed, giving the girl a chance to take in the pointy black hat and the batwing hat pins. It had an impressive effect. She blushed, and, peering out into the quiet alleyway, hurriedly motioned Granny inside. There was a big, mossy courtyard on the other side of the wall, crisscrossed with washing lines. Granny had the chance to become one of the very few women to learn what it really is that wizards wear under their robes, but modestly averted her eyes and followed the girl across the flagstones and down a wide flight of steps. They led into a long, high tunnel lined with archways and currently full of steam. Granny caught sight of long lines of wash tubs in the big rooms off to the sides. The air had the warm, fat smell of ironing. A gaggle of girls carrying wash baskets pushed past her and hurried up the steps. They stopped halfway up and turned slowly to look at her. Granny set her shoulders back and tried to look as mysterious as possible. Her guide, who still hadn't got rid of her clothes pegs, led her down a side passage into a room that was a maze of shelves piled with laundry. In the very centre of the maze, sitting at a table, was a very fat woman with a ginger wig. She had been writing in a very large laundry book. It was still open in front of her, but was currently inspecting a large stained vest. Have you tried bleaching? she asked. Yes, m'am, said the maid beside her. What about tincture of myrrh? Yes, m'am, it just turned it blue, m'am. Well, this is a new one on me, said the laundry woman. And I've seen brimstone and soot and dragon blood and demon blood and I don't know what else. She turned the vest over and read the name tape carefully sewn inside. Ah, uh, Grandpone the White. He's going to be Grandpa in the grave. He doesn't take better care of his laundry. I tell you, girl, a white magician is just a black magician with a good housekeeper. Take it. She caught sight of Granny and stopped. <coughs> said Granny's guide, dropping a hurried curtsy. <coughs> yes, yes, thank you, Cassandra. You may go, said the fat woman, and stood up and beamed at Granny. 
and with an almost perceptible click, wound her voice up several social classes. Pray excuse us, she said. You'll find us hall at sixes and sevens, it being washing day and everything. Is this a courtesy call, or may I make so bold as to ask? She lowered her voice. Is there a message from the other side? Granny looked blank, but only a fraction of a second. The witch marks on the doorpost had said that the housekeeper welcomed witches and was particularly anxious for news of her four husbands. She was also in random pursuit of a fifth, hence the ginger wig, and, if Granny's ears weren't deceiving her, the creak of enough whalebone to infuriate an entire ecology movement. Gullible and foolish, the signs had said. Granny withheld judgment because city witches didn't seem that bright themselves. The housekeeper must have mistaken her expression. Don't be afraid, she said. My staff have distinct instructions to welcome witches, although, of course, they upstairs don't approve. No doubt you would like a cup of tea and something to eat. Granny bowed solemnly. And I will see if we can't find a nice bundle of old clothes for you, too. The housekeeper beamed. Old clothes? Oh, yes, thank you, Mum. The housekeeper swept forward with a sound like an elderly tea clipper in a gale and beckoned Granny to follow her. I'll have the tea brought to my flat. Tea with a lot of tea leaves. Granny stumped along after her. Old clothes? Did this fat woman really mean it? The nerve! Of course, if they were good quality. There seemed to be a whole world under the university. It was a maze of cellars, cold rooms, still rooms, kitchens and sculleries, and every inhabitant was either carrying something, pumping something, pushing something, or standing around and just shouting. Granny caught glimpses of rooms full of ice, and others glowing with the heat from red-hot cooking stoves, wall-sized. Bakeries smelled of new bread and Taproom smelled of old beer. Everything smelled of sweat and wood smoke. The housekeeper led her up an old spiral staircase and unlocked the door with one of the large number of keys that hung from her belt. The room inside was pink and frilly. There were frills on things that no one in their right mind would frill. It was like being inside candy floss. Very nice, said Granny, and because she felt it was expected of her, Tasteful. She looked around for something unfriendly to sit on and gave up. Whatever am I thinking of? The housekeeper trilled. I'm Mrs. Whitlow, what I expect you know, of course. And I have the honour to be addressing... Eh? Oh, Granny Weatherwax, said Granny. The frills were getting to her. They gave Pink a bad name. I'm psychic myself, of course, said Mrs. Whitlow. Granny had nothing against fortune-telling, provided it was done badly by people with no talent for it. It was a different matter if people who ought to know better did it, though. She considered that the future was a frail enough thing at best, and if people looked at it hard, they changed it. Granny had some quite complex theories about space and time, and why they shouldn't be tinkered with, but fortunately, good fortune-tellers were rare, and anyway, people preferred bad fortune-tellers who could be relied upon for the correct dose of uplift and optimism. Granny knew all about bad fortune-telling. It was harder than the real thing. You needed a good imagination. She couldn't help wondering if Mrs. Whitlow was a born witch who somehow missed her training. She was certainly laying siege to the future. There was a crystal ball under a sort of pink frilly tea cosy, and several sets of divinatory cards, and a pink velvet bag of runestones, and one of those little tables on wheels that no prudent witch would touch with a ten-foot broomstick. And, Granny wasn't sure on this point, either some special dried monkey turds from a lamasserie, or some dried llama turds from a monastery, 
which apparently could be thrown in such a way as to reveal the sum total of knowledge and wisdom in the universe. It was all rather sad. Or there's the tea leaves, of course, said Mrs Whitlow, indicating a big brown pot on the table between them. I know witches often prefer them, but they always seem to me so, well, common to me. No offence meant. There probably wasn't any offence meant at that, thought Granny. Mrs Whitlow was giving her the sort of look generally used by puppies when they're not sure what to expect next and are beginning to worry that it may be the rolled-up newspaper. She picked up Mrs Whitlow's cup and had started to peer into it when she caught the disappointed expression that floated across the housekeeper's face like a shadow across a snowfield. Then she remembered what she was doing and turned the cup widdishins three times made a few vague passes over it and mumbled a charm, which she normally used to cure mastitis in elderly goats, but never mind. This display of obvious magical talent seemed to cheer up Mrs Whitlow no end. Granny wasn't normally very good at tea leaves, but she squinted at the sugar-encrusted mess at the bottom of the cup and let her mind wander. What she really needed now was a handy rat, or even a cockroach, that happened to be somewhere near Esk, so that she could borrow its mind. What Granny actually found was that the university had a mind of its own. It is well known that stone can think, because the whole of electronics is based on that fact. But in some universes, men spend ages looking for other intelligences in the sky without once looking under their feet. That is because they've got the time span all wrong. From stone's point of view, the universe is hardly created, and mountain ranges are bouncing up and down like organ stops, while continents zip backwards and forwards in general high spirits, crashing into each other from the sheer joy of momentum and getting their rocks off. It is going to be quite some time before Stone notices its disfiguring little skin disease and starts to scratch, which is just as well. The rocks from which Unseen University was built, however, have been absorbing magic for several thousands of years, and all that random power has got to go somewhere. The university has, in fact, developed a personality. Granny could sense it like a big and quite friendly animal, just waiting to roll over on its roof and have its floor scratched. It was paying no attention to her, however. It was watching Esk. Granny found the child by following the threads of the university's attention and watched in fascination as the scenes unfolded in the great hall. In there? The voice came from a long way away. Hmm? I said, what do you say in there? Repeated Mrs Whitlow. Eh? I said, what do... Oh! Granny reeled her mind in, quite confused. The trouble with borrowing another mind was you always felt out of place when you got back to your own body, and Granny was the first person ever to read the mind of a building. Now she was feeling big and gritty and full of passages. Are you all right? Granny nodded and opened her windows. She extended her east and west wings and tried to concentrate on the tiny cup held in her pillars. Fortunately, Mrs Whitlow put her plaster complexion and stony silence down to occult powers at work, while Granny found that a brief exposure to the vast silicone memory of the university had quite stimulated her imagination. In a voice like a draughty corridor, which made the housekeeper very impressed, she wove a future full of keen young men fighting for Mrs Whitlow's ample favours. She also spoke very quickly, because what she had seen in the great hall made her anxious to go round to the main gates again. There is another thing, she added. Yes, yes. I see you hiring a new servant. You do hire the servants here, don't you? Right. And this one is a young girl, very economical, very good worker, can turn her hand to anything. What about her then? said Mrs Whitlow already savouring Granny's surprising graphic descriptions of her future and drunk with curiosity. These spirits are a little unclear on this point, said Granny, but it's very important that you hire her. 
no problem there, said Mrs. Whitlow. Can't keep servants here, you know, not for long. It's all the magic. It leaks down here, you know, especially from the library, where they keep all them magical books. Two of the top floor maids walked out yesterday. Actually, they said they were fed up going to bed not knowing what shape they would wake up in the morning. The senior wizards turn them back, you know, but it's not the same. Yes, well, the spirits say this young lady won't be any trouble as far as that is concerned, said Granny grimly. If she can sweep and scrub, she's welcome, I'm sure, said Mrs Whitlow, looking puzzled. She even brings her own broom, according to the spirits, that is. How very helpful. When is this young lady going to arrive? Oh, soon. Soon? That's what the spirits say. A faint suspicion clouded the housekeeper's face. This ain't the sort of thing spirits normally say. Where do they say that exactly? Here, said Granny. Look, the little cluster of tea leaves between the sugar and this crack here. Am I right? Their eyes met. Mrs Whitlow might have had her weaknesses, but she was quite tough enough to rule the below-stairs world of the university. However, Granny could outstare a snake. After a few seconds, the housekeeper's eyes began to water. Yes, I expect you are, she said meekly, and fished a handkerchief from the recesses of her bosom. Well then, said Granny, sitting back and replacing the teacup in its saucer. There are plenty of opportunities here for a young woman willing to work hard, said Mrs Whitlow. I myself started as a maid, you know. We all do, said Granny vaguely. And now I must be going. She stood up and reached for her hat. But, must hurry, urgent appointment, said Granny over her shoulder as she hurried down the steps. There's a bundle of old clothes. Granny paused, her instincts battling for mastery. Any black velvet? Yes, and some silk. Granny wasn't sure she approved of silk. She'd heard it came out of a caterpillar's bottom, but black velvet had a powerful attraction. Loyalty won. Put it on one side, I may call again, she shouted, and ran down the corridor. Cooks and scullery maids darted for cover as the old woman pounded along the slippery flagstones, leapt up the stairs to the courtyard and skidded out into the lane, her shawl flying out behind her and her boots striking sparks from the cobbles. Once out into the open, she hitched up her skirts and broke into a full gallop, turning the corner into the main square in a screeching two-boot drift that left a long white scratch across the stones. She was just in time to see S come running through the gate in tears. The magic just wouldn't work. I could feel it there, but it just wouldn't come out. Perhaps you were trying too hard, said Granny. Magic's like fishing. Jumping around and splashing never caught any fish. You have to bide quiet and let it happen natural. And then everyone laughed at me. Someone even gave me a sweet. You got some profit out of the day then, said Granny. Granny, said Esk accusingly. Well, what did you expect, she asked. At least they only laughed at you. Laughter don't hurt. You walked up to the chief wizard and showed off in front of everyone and only got laughed at. You're doing well. You are. Have you eaten the sweet? Esk scowled. Yes. What kind was it? Toffee. Can't abide toffee. <laughs> said Esk. I suppose you want me to get peppermint next time. Don't you sarky me, young fellow, my lass. Nothing wrong with peppermint. Pass me that bowl. Another advantage of city life, Granny had discovered, was glassware. Some of her more complicated potions required apparatus which either had to be bought from the dwarves at extortionate rates, or, if ordered from the nearest human glass blower, arrived in straw, and usually, pieces. She had tried blowing her own, and the effort always made her cough, which produced some very funny results. But the city's thriving alchemy profession meant that there were whole shops full of glass for the buying, and a witch could always arrange bargain prices. She watched carefully as yellow steam surged along the twisty maze of tubing and eventually condensed in one large sticky droplet. She caught it neatly on the end of a glass spoon and very carefully tipped it into a tiny glass file. Esk watched through her tears. What's that? she asked. 
It's a never you mind, said Granny, sealing the file's cork with wax. A medicine? In a manner of speaking. Granny pulled her writing set towards her and selected a pen. Her tongue stuck out of the corner of her mouth as she very carefully wrote out the label, with much scratching and pausing to work out the spellings. Who is it for? Mrs. Herapath, the glassblower's wife. Esk blew her nose. <coughs> He's the one who doesn't blow much glass, isn't he? <coughs> Granny looked at her over the top of the desk. How do you mean? When she was talking to you yesterday, she called him old Mr. Once a Fortnight. Hmm, said Granny. She carefully finished the sentence. Dilute in one pint water and one droppy in his tea. And be sure to wear loose clothing. Also, that no visitors expected. One day, she told herself, I'm going to have to have that talk with her. The child seemed curiously dense. She had already assisted at enough births and taken the goats to old Nanny Annapol's Billy without drawing any obvious conclusions. Granny wasn't quite certain what she should do about it but the time never seemed appropriate to bring up the subject. She wondered whether, in her heart of hearts, she was too embarrassed. She felt like a farrier who could shoe horses, cure them, rear them and judge them, but had only the sketchiest idea about how one rode them. She pasted the label onto the file and wrapped it carefully in plain paper. Now. There is another way into the university, she said, looking sidelong at Esk who was making a disgruntled job of mashing herbs in a mortar. A witch's way. Esk looked up. Granny treated herself to a thin smile and started work on another label. Writing labels was always the hard part of magic, as far as she was concerned. I don't expect you'd be interested, she went on. It's not very glamorous. They laughed at me, Esk mumbled. Yes, you said. So you won't be wanting to try again, then. I quite understand. There was a silence broken only by the scratching of Granny's pen. Eventually, Esk said, This way... Mm. It'll get me into the university? Of course, said Granny haughtily. I said I'd find a way, didn't I? A very good way, too. You won't have to bother with lessons. You can go all over the place. No one will notice you. You'll be invisible, really. And, well, you can really clean up. But, of course, after all that laughing, you won't be interested, will you? Pray, have another cup of tea, Mrs. Weatherwax, said Mrs. Whitlow. Mistress, said Granny. Pardon? It's Mistress Weatherwax, said Granny. Three sugars, please. Mrs. Whitlow pushed the bowl towards her. Much as she looked forward to Granny's visits, it came expensive in sugar. Sugar lumps never seemed to last long around Granny. Very bad for the figure, she said, and the teeth so high here. I never had a figure to speak of, and my teeth take care of themselves, said Granny. It was true, more's the pity. Granny suffered from robustly healthy teeth, which she considered a big drawback in a witch. She really envied Nanny Annapol the witch over the mountain, who managed to lose all her teeth by the time she was twenty and had real crone credibility. It meant you ate a lot of soup, but you also got a lot of respect. And then there was warts. Without any effort, Nanny managed to get a face like a sock full of marbles, while Granny had tried every reputable wart causer and failed to raise even the obligatory nose wart. Some witches had all the luck. Hmm? she said aware of Mrs. Whitlow's fluting. I said, said Mrs. Whitlow, that young Escarina is a real treasure. Quite the little find. She keeps the floors spotless, spotless. No task too big. I said to her yesterday, I said, that broom of yours 
might as well have a life of its own. And do you know what she said? I couldn't even venture a guess, said Granny weakly. She said the Dost was afraid of it, can you imagine? Yes, said Granny. Mrs. Whitlow pushed her teacup towards her and gave her an embarrassed smile. Granny sighed inwardly and squinted into the none-too-clean depths of the future. She was definitely beginning to run out of imagination. The broom whisked down the corridor, raising a great cloud of dust, which, if you looked hard at it, seemed somehow to be sucked back into the broomstick. If you looked even harder, you'd see that the broom handle had strange markings on it, which were not so much carved as clinging, and somehow changed shape as you watched. But no one looked. Esk sat on one of the high, deep windows and stared out over the city. She was feeling angrier than usual, so the broom attacked the dust with unusual vigour. Spiders ran desperate eight-legged dashes for safety as ancestral cobwebs disappeared into the void. In the walls, mice clung to each other, legs braced against the inside of their holes, Woodworms scrabbled in the ceiling beams as they were drawn inexorably backwards down their tunnels. You can really clean up, said Esk. <laughs> there were some good points, she had to admit. The food was simple, but there was plenty of it, and she had a room to herself somewhere in the roof, and it was quite luxurious because here she could lie in until 5am, which to Granny's way of thinking was practically noon. The work certainly wasn't hard. She just started sweeping until the staff realised what was expected of it, and then she could amuse herself until it was finished. If anyone came, the staff would immediately lean itself nonchalantly against a wall. But she wasn't learning any wizardry. She could wander into empty classrooms and look at the diagrams chalked on the board and on the floor, too, in the more advanced classes, but the shapes were meaningless and unpleasant. They reminded Esk of the pictures in Simon's book. They looked alive. She gazed out across the rooftops of Ankh Morpok and reasoned like this. Writing was only the words that people said, squeezed between layers of paper until they were fossilised. Fossils were well known on the disc world, great spiral shells and badly constructed creatures that were left over from the time when the creator hadn't really decided what he wanted to make and was, as it were, just idly messing around with Pleistocene. And the words people said were just shadows of real things. But some things were too big to be really trapped in words, and even the words were too powerful to be completely tamed by writing. So it followed that some writing was actually trying to become things. Esk's thoughts became confused things at this point, but she was certain that really magic words were the ones that pulsed angrily, trying to escape and become real. They didn't look very nice. But then she remembered the previous day. It had been rather odd. The university classrooms were designed on the funnel principle, with tiers of seats, polished by the bottoms of the disc's greatest mages, looking precipitously down into a central area where there was a workbench, a couple of blackboards and enough floor space for a decent-sized instructional octagram. There was a lot of dead space under the tiers, and Esk had found it a quite useful observation post, peering around between the apprentice wizard's pointy boots at the instructor. It was very restful, with the droning of the lecturers drifting over her as gently as the buzzing of the slightly zonked bees in Granny's special herb garden. There never seemed to be any practical magic. It always seemed to be just words. Wizards seemed to like words. But yesterday had been different. Esk had been sitting in the dusty gloom, trying to do even some very simple magic, when she heard the door open and boots clump across the floor. That was surprising in itself, Esk knew the timetable, and the second-year students, who normally occupied this room, were down for beginner's dematerialization, with J. Paul the spry in the gym. Students of magic had little use for physical exercise. The gym was a large room lined with lead and rowan wood, where neophytes could work out at high magic 
without seriously unbalancing the universe, although not always without seriously unbalancing themselves. Magic had no mercy on the ham-fisted. Some clumsy students were lucky enough to walk out. Others were removed in bottles. Esk peeped between the slats. These weren't students. They were wizards, quite high ones, to judge by their robes. And there was no mistaking the figure that climbed onto the lecturer's dais like a badly strung puppet, bumping heavily into the lectern and absent-mindedly apologising to it. It was Simon. No one else had eyes like two raw eggs in warm water and a nose bright red from blowing. For Simon, the pollen count always went to infinity. It occurred to Esk that, minus his general allergy to the whole of creation, and with a decent haircut and a few lessons in deportment, the boy could look quite handsome. It was an unusual thought, and she squirrelled it away for further consideration. When the wizards had settled down, Simon began to talk. He read from notes, and every time he stuttered over a word, the wizards, as one man, without being able to stop themselves, chorused it for him. After a while, a stick of chalk rose from the lectern and started to write on the blackboard behind him. Esk had picked up enough about wizard magic to know that this was an astounding achievement. Simon had been at the university for a couple of weeks, and most students hadn't mastered light levitation by the end of their second year. A little white stub skittered and squeaked across the blackness to the accompaniment of Simon's voice. Even allowing for the stutter, he was not a very good speaker. He dropped notes, he corrected himself, he ummed and ahed, and as far as Esk was concerned, he wasn't saying anything very much. Phrases filtered down to her hiding place. Basic fabric of the universe was one, and she didn't understand what that was, unless he meant denim or maybe flannelette. Mutability of the possibility matrix. She couldn't guess that at all. Sometimes he seemed to be saying that nothing existed unless people thought it did, and the world was really only there at all because people kept on imagining it. But then he seemed to be saying that there were lots of worlds, all nearly the same and all sort of occupying the same place, but all separated by the thickness of a shadow, so that everything that ever could happen would have somewhere to happen in. Esk could get to grips with this, she had half suspected it ever since she cleaned out the senior wizard's lavatory. Or rather, while the staff got on with the job while Esk examined the urinals, and with the assistance of some half-remembered details of her brother's in the tin bath in front of the fire at home, formulated her unofficial general theory of comparative anatomy. The senior wizard's lavatory was a magical place, with real running water and interesting tiles, and... Most importantly, two big silver mirrors fixed to opposite walls so that someone looking into one could see themselves repeated again and again until the image was too small to see. It was Esk's first introduction to the idea of infinity. More to the point, she had a suspicion that one of the mirror Esks, right on the edge of sight, was waving to her. There was something disturbing about the phrases Simon used. Half the time he seemed to be saying that the world was about as real as a soap bubble or a dream. The chalk shrieked its way across the board behind him. Sometimes Simon had to stop and explain symbols to the wizards, who seemed to ask to be getting excited at some very silly sentences. Then the chalk would start again, curving across the darkness like a comet, trailing its dust behind it. The light was fading out of the sky outside. As the room grew more gloomy, the chalked words glowed and the blackboard appeared to Esk to be not so much dark as simply not there at all, but just a square hole cut out of the world. Simon talked on about the world being made up of tiny things whose presence could only be determined by the fact that they were not there. Little spinning balls of nothingness that magic could shunt together to make stars and butterflies and diamonds. Everything was made up of emptiness. The funny thing was, he seemed to find this fascinating. 
Besk was only aware that the walls of the room grew as thin and insubstantial as smoke, as if the emptiness in them was expanding to swallow whatever it was that defined them as walls, and instead there was nothing but the familiar, cold, empty, glittering plain with its distant, worn hills and the creatures that stood as still as statues looking down. There were a lot more of them now. They seemed for all the world to be clustering like moths around a light. One important difference was that a moth's face, even close up, was as friendly as a bunny rabbit's compared to the things watching Simon. Then a servant came in to light the lamps and the creatures vanished turning into perfectly harmless shadows that lurked in the corners of the room. At some time in the recent past, someone had decided to brighten the ancient corridors of the university by painting them, having a vague notion that learning should be fun. It hadn't worked. It's a fact known throughout the universes that no matter how carefully the colours are chosen, institutional decor ends up as either vomit green, unmentionable brown, nicotine yellow or surgical appliance pink. By some little understood process of sympathetic resonance, corridors painted in these colours always smell of slightly boiled cabbage, even if no cabbage is ever cooked in the vicinity. Somewhere in the corridors a bell rang, Esk dropped lightly from her windowsill, grabbed the staff and started to sweep industriously as doors were flung open and the corridors filled with students. They streamed past her on two sides like water around a rock. For a few minutes there was utter confusion. Then doors slammed, a few laggard feet pattered away in the distance and Esk was by herself again. Not for the first time, Esk wished that the staff could talk. The other servants were friendly enough you couldn't talk to them. Not about magic, anyway. She was also coming to the conclusion that she ought to learn to read. This reading business seemed to be the key to wizard magic, which was all about words. Wizards seemed to think that names were the same as things. That if you changed the name, you changed the thing. At least, it seemed to be something like that. Reading. That meant the library. Simon had said there were thousands of books in it, and amongst all those words there were bound to be one or two she could read. Esk put the staff over her shoulder and set off resolutely for Mrs Whitlow's office. She was nearly there when a wall said, Psst! When Esk stared at it, it turned out to be Granny. It wasn't that Granny could make herself invisible. It was just that she had this talent for being able to fade into the foreground so that she wasn't noticed. How are you getting on then? asked Granny. How's the magic coming along? What are you doing here, Granny? said Esk. Been to tell Mrs. Whitlow her fortune, said Granny, holding up a large bundle of old clothes with some satisfaction. Her smile faded under Esk's stern gaze. Well, things are different in the city, she said. City people are always worried about the future. It comes from eating unnatural food. Anyway, she added, suddenly realising that she was whining, why shouldn't I tell fortunes? You always said Hilda was playing on the foolishness of her sex, said Esk. You said that them as tells fortune should be ashamed of themselves, and anyway, you don't need old clothes. Waste not, want not said Granny primly. She had spent her entire life on the old clothes standard and wasn't about to let her temporary prosperity dislodge her. Are you getting enough to eat? Yes, said Esk. Granny, about this wizard magic, it's all words. Always said it was, said Granny. No, I mean... Esk began, but Granny waved a hand irritably. Can't be bothered with this at the moment, she said. I've got some big orders to fill by tonight. If it goes on like this, I'm going to have to train someone up. Can't you come and see me when you get an afternoon off or whatever it is they give you? Train someone up? said S, horrified. You mean as a witch? No, said Granny. I mean, perhaps. But what about me? 
Well, you're going your own way, said Granny. Whatever that is. Hmm, said Esk. Granny stared at her. I'll be off then, she said at last. She turned and strode off towards the kitchen entrance. As she did so, her cloak swirled out, and Esk saw that it was now lined with red. A dark, whiny red, but red nevertheless. On Granny, who had never been known to wear any visible clothing that was other than serviceable black, it was quite shocking. End of CD 5